0: Well today we're going to be continuing our study regarding the doctrine of God's covenant with man. And today we're going to be continuing what we began last Lord's Day. Last Lord's Day we started talking about the covenant of grace. Now, just by way of review. You know, when we were looking at God's covenant with man, the very first, the overarching covenant that we discussed and we talked about was that covenant of redemption, that covenant that was made between the Godhead, between the Trinity, which lays out the plan of redemption itself. And then we have, if you remember, the covenant of grace coming after the fall between, between God through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And that's what we set out and saw last week. And just by way of review, that covenant of grace, by definition, we would call it that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending elect sinner through the mediator Christ in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ. And the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. So last Lord's Day, one of the things that I wanted to harp on was the fact that this covenant of grace, this one plan of salvation was consistent from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There was not different methods, different means by which people were saved. It was always faith in Christ alone. And last Lord's Day, we saw through the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter three in particular, how that was the fact. How Abraham, the father of the faithful, the father of the Jews, believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we we laid that groundwork to emphasize the fact that there was only one method of salvation over and against the prevailing understanding that we see dominant in our culture throughout the church today, that there was a method of salvation for the Jews and then another method of salvation later on. No, the scriptures does not affirm that. So we affirm what the Bible teaches, the one way of salvation, faith in Christ alone for both the saints in the Old Testament as well as the faith in the New Testament, saints in the New Testament. Now, with that being said, it would be silly for us to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament and not recognize that, well, there do seem to be some practices that are a lot different between the Old and the New. None of us, I would hope, are sacrificing um, animals regularly Boys aren't being circumcised. We don't have priests. Our Sabbath is not on Saturday, but on Sunday. And we get to eat pork, praise God. <laughs> so there are clearly differences in our practices. That is evident. Now the question is, why? Why are there differences? If we are affirming that there is one way of salvation, why is there this change between the old and the new? So before we dive in, I want to give an analogy that hopefully helps to highlight why there is that change. Let's say that my wife, Deborah, and I, let's say we decide that we're going to get a pet for Noel, but we want to keep it a surprise until her birthday. We don't, now, we don't want her completely out the loop, so we do let her know, hey, you're going to be getting a pet, but you're going to have to wait until your birthday to know exactly what you're getting. Now, between now and her birthday, what we do is we give her some clues so she can try and figure out what type of pet she will be receiving. At first, we give her a paw print. Then we give her a toy ball for the pet. Finally, we give her a toy bone. Now, with all of these clues, Noelle figures out that, well, it seems like I'm probably gonna be getting a dog. But she still has no idea the type of breed, you know, whether it's gonna be a puppy or a fully grown dog. Now, when her birthday comes and the pet is revealed, she sees she got a golden retriever. And let's say she names, for the sake of argument, she names the dog Fido. Now, let's say a a couple of months go by and we go on vacation and we have to leave that dog with family. So by that point, we would have taken probably plenty of pictures because it would have been our first dog that we had. So there would have been plenty of pictures that Noelle would have taken of her new dog, Fido. Now, while we're on the trip, since the dog isn't with us, if Noelle ever wants to remember, think about her new dog that she got, she can look at the pictures that we took of Fido. She doesn't need the toy bone, she doesn't need the the, the ball to jog her memory, but the picture of the dog that she has is a much clearer reminder of her dog because it's actually a depiction of her dog. So now what's the point of that analogy that I'm giving? It's to highlight the different perspectives as it pertains to the one gift, the dog. Prior to Noel getting the dog, the clues that we gave her were meant to point her in the right direction in anticipation of the pet that she'll be receiving. Now that she has the dog, it's been revealed in a sense. She doesn't need the clues anymore. She's not trying to figure out what the pet will be. She knows what her pet is. So the clues are no longer necessary. If she wants to think about her pet, while the pet isn't with her, she doesn't need clues, but reminders. And the pictures in this case are good reminders about her new pet dog. So likewise, The key difference between the old administration and the new administration is perspective as it pertains to the substance, Christ. In the old administration, the anticipated Christ is being described and pointed to in all the sacrifices, the laws, the types, the shadows. In the new administration, Christ has been revealed and the sacraments and ordinances are now looking back in remembrance of Christ who came. Our confession of faith puts it this way in chapter seven, sections five and six. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, all pointing to Christ to come. Which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remissions of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Under the Gospel, when Christ, the substance, is was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual, spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles. And it's called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations." End quote. So again, the difference lies with the revealing of the substance, Jesus Christ. With the full unveiling of Christ, of necessity, it required a change in the ordinances. John Calvin, in his institutes, puts it in this way. It was necessary in representing Christ in his absence and predicting his future advent to employ a sign, a different set of signs from those which are employed now that his actual manifestation is exhibited. So in other words, in the old administration, what we see with the sacrifices, with the priesthood, all of this was pointing, was in anticipation of Christ who was to come. The purpose was to keep their eyes looking forward to Christ who was to come. Now that Christ has come, he has completed the work which he was set out to do. What we have in baptism, in the Lord's supper, in the word is done in remembrance, looking back at what he has done. He has been revealed. We're no longer in anticipation of him because he has arrived already. So now with that being said, understanding the difference, one in anticipation, the other in remembrance, one looking forward, the other looking back, we'll now spend the rest of this time discussing the old administration of the covenant of grace, and in particular, how it does point to the Messiah to come. Now, we're gonna start at the very beginning, after the fall, in the garden. After man falls into the estate of sin and misery caused by Adam eating the forbidden fruit, We see God promising to send a redeemer. The seed of the woman, we read in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we read it last week, I'll read it again. And I will make enemies of you and the woman, he's talking to the serpent, of course, and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So as soon as the fall takes place, we see God promising to send a redeemer, to send someone, to crush the serpent's head, to deal with the problem of sin that came about because of the fall. Now, after this takes place, Adam, Eve, they have children, Cain, Abel. Abel dies, they have another, Seth, so on and so forth. They propagate the, the world, their children, their children's children, so on and so forth, to the point that the world becomes corrupt to the point that God destroys the world by a global flood. Now, he does preserve Noah and his family through the ark, and of course, two of every animal. And after God destroys the world by a flood, we see, starting in Genesis chapter 8, And in going into Genesis chapter nine, which I don't have time to read, but when you have a time, feel free to read. We see that he promises to maintain continuity in days and seasons. We see that he promises to not destroy the world again by a flood as he did. We see that he promises to basically to keep things preserved, um, unto, to keep things preserved, excuse me. Now, this is what we know or what we read and hear as the Noahic covenant itself. Now, this covenant benefits all of mankind and animals. And some have sought to refer to this covenant as a covenant of common grace. Now, obviously, For those of you in in our church, you understand that the term grace, if you remember from our study as it pertains to the attributes of God, grace is an aspect of God's love, and God's love is only directed towards the elect. So we wouldn't necessarily call it common grace as much as God's goodness extending to all mankind. Now, this covenant, this no way covenant, while it doesn't neatly fall in the covenant of grace as the covenant of grace is redemptive in nature, the promise that God makes in the Noahic covenant is important for the assurance of the coming of the promised redeemer. Because think about it, Noah and his family just witnessed God destroy the entire world by a global flood. So it would be understandable that they might have some doubts in regards to this redeemer who was to come because they just saw what God could do if you anger him enough. So in order to give Noah and his descendants confidence that nothing from a global standpoint would interfere with the coming of the promised redeemer, we see this covenant being given, this Noahic covenant where he promises to preserve the world. Now, after this, after Noah and his family have children, and their children have children and the world becomes populated again, we move forward. And then we get to the time of Abraham, where with Abraham, if you remember, we have the formal establishment of the covenant of grace. We saw in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, to 3, God coming to Abram and saying this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. And from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then we see moving forward in Genesis chapter 15, this promise being expanded even more. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but the one who who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So up to this point, we see the groundwork being laid to establish a covenant. And with Abraham, we have the formal establishment of it. With Abraham, God selects a particular people and promises salvation to them. We see this covenant being expanded even further, explained even more. Two chapters later in Genesis chapter 17, where we read this in verses one through 14. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "'I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. "'I will establish my covenant between me and you, "'and I will multiply you exceedingly.' Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, "'saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, "'and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. "'No longer shall your name be called Abram, "'but your name shall be Abraham, "'for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations.' I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God said further to Abraham. Now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house, or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we see God expanding it even further. If you remember when we talked about what's the essential elements in the covenant, the contracted parties, the promises and the requirements. We see all of this from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And along what we see here, especially in Genesis chapter 17, along with these essential elements, we see God giving Abraham a specific sign of the covenant that he was to apply not only to himself, but to all the males in his household who were eight days and older that sign was circumcision. Now, what's interesting to note regarding this sign of the covenant, as God calls it circumcision, is that although Abraham, he was circumcised after he was justified, those in Abraham's household were required to be circumcised by God regardless of their profession. In fact, We see with Ishmael that although God explicitly states when you look forward in in, verse 19 that the seed won't come through him, he was still required to be circumcised. So what's interesting and what you can start to see here in Genesis chapter 17 is a visible, invisible distinction being made, a distinction that we see even in the church today all of Abraham's sons and male servants on the basis of his faith, of his profession, were required to receive the sign of circumcision pointing to the promise. Yet only those who would ultimately believe in the promise pointed to by the sign, like Abraham did in Genesis 15, were saved, received justification. All those who were part of the visible covenant community were gonna experience some of the physical blessings, the inheritance, for example, of Canaan. But only those who are of the invisible community, those who believed in Christ and had their hearts circumcised, like we read in Deuteronomy, would experience the ultimate blessing of the covenant of grace, which is salvation, ultimately. So we see this being expounded on in Genesis chapter 17, and we know what happens from here. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob, As Joseph, Joseph gets sent to Egypt by his jealous brothers. He becomes second in command. His brothers, along with Jacob, come to Egypt. And after Joseph dies, they get enslaved. And they are enslaved for hundreds of years. And then Moses comes and with, through God, leads them out of slavery. And then we get in Exodus chapter 19 to where they are in Mount Sinai. And we read this in Exodus 19 verses one through nine. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So again, after God leads Israel out of Egypt from the slavery that they endured for hundreds of years, we see now this, what we know as the Mosaic Covenant. Him giving him eventually in Exodus chapter 20, we see the recitation of the 10 commandments, which after this, we always recite ourselves. And then we also see, the general equity of the moral law, how it's to be applied, being given to them. And then we see the ceremonial law and all that's entailed within that, given to Israel here. We see with this, God instructing them eventually in Exodus 25, how to build the tabernacle, the types of sacrifices they were to give, how the priesthood was to be carried out, and the feasts that they were to have. We see all of this within this Mosaic covenant. Now, what's important to note about this period is that this addition was not to the exclusion of the promise that was given to Abraham. Now, we saw this last week, but it it bears me just repeating, or at least going to Galatians 3.17, which we read last week, which Paul says the law, which he's talking about here, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Again, you can't forget justification can only be attained by faith in Christ alone. However, there are two things that we have to consider about this time. One, the inability of attaining justification by their own ability needed to be clearly proved to them. And two, Christ, the person by which they would receive justification, has not yet arrived to deal with sin. And now this is where the Mosaic law steps in. Because on the one hand, with the Ten Commandments, what we see is it exposes the fact that there is a standard of righteousness that God has set that no man is able to perfectly keep. On the other hand, with the sacrifices, the priesthood, and everything else contained in the ceremonial law, we see it points the Jews' eyes toward the Messiah, who they must place their faith in. A couple of passages, if you have your Bibles, in the book of Hebrews that I wanna read, I would recommend, if you have time, to just read Hebrews seven through Hebrews 10, because it really highlights this, Obviously, I don't have time to read all of this, but I will read certain points from here, starting in Hebrews eight verses four and five. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Now, if he talking about Christ were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses. Was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For, and now he quotes from Exodus 25, verse 40. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. So the writer is making the point that the tabernacle is a pattern of something else. And then we see what that is. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see here the shadow in the earthly tabernacle was pointing to the heavenly tabernacle, which Christ entered into himself. And then we see finally in Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 14. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But, In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, and he goes to quote Psalm 40, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by the one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So the sacrifices given under the Mosaic law, was not in and of themselves to do away with sin, but to point the believer's eyes to the one who would be sacrificed one time so that their sins are dealt with for all time. That is Jesus Christ. So as we bring all of this to a close, with the old administration of the covenant of grace, the promise of redemption through a redeemer was made clear. It wasn't through their own ability that they were to receive justification, but through faith in the Messiah who was to come. God promised this Redeemer as early as Genesis chapter 3. And we see God making the Redeemer more and more clear to the Jews over time with the old administration of the covenant of grace. With Abraham, God sets apart a people for himself through which the Redeemer would come. He gives them the sign of the covenant, pointing them to the promise made that they ultimately had to receive by faith. When God gives them the law with Moses, it was to keep their eyes focused on the Redeemer, not to give them an alternative means of justification. The sacrifices, the tabernacles, and the priesthood were types and shadows pointing them to Christ. Their faith was to rest not on the types that were pointing them to Christ, but on Christ, which the types were pointing them to. Since Christ did not at that time yet come to fulfill his mission, the old administration of the covenant of grace served to keep their eyes fixed on him. When Christ does finally come and does fulfill what he came to do, offer up himself as a sacrifice for sin once for all, it is then that we see a change in how the covenant of grace is administered. No longer is the covenant now pointing to Christ, but it's now looking back at Christ, remembering Christ. This new administration, as we call it, of the covenant of grace, we will look at next Lord's Day in our final lesson.